I'm going to try to use this uh, mic. Uh, most people tell me they can hear me re- regardless of whether or not I have a mic or not. But you know that mic that everybody's supposed to wear around their head? Kelly has formed that to his head, and it doesn't fit anybody else. No, it just falls off my head. So, Okay, um, our uh, passage for today, uh, Ronnie taught last week on... Uh, basically chapter 1 and into chapter 2, verse 3. I'm taking First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let's pray as we bring in. Dear God, I just ask that you bless us today with understanding from your word that we can be the people you call us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Um, let's, let's just start by reading it. It's pretty short, so we could read it several times during the class and, uh, and, uh, get through it. Again, first uh, Peter chapter two, verses four through 10. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I do have a slide. I don't know if it's available back there or not, but... uh... Whether, whether it is or not doesn't really matter. Um, it's, it's just really an, an outline. I don't know if it was put in or not. No. <laughs> that looks like Jacob's text. <laughs> Anyways, let's, uh, let's start with a bit of uh, sort of summary of... Uh, or, or context, uh, what did Ronnie talk to us last week about that, that really First Peter was written for or to and the focus of that? And Ronnie can't answer because obviously he knows. Does anybody remember what Ronnie talked to us about? Sure, persecution right? Persecution. He also mentioned something about 
the fact that the early church was considered by some around them to be something we think today is very foreign from Christianity. Atheists, exactly. So the, uh, the, the Christians, the early Christians, were actually considered by those around them to be atheists. Why? Uh, sorry, they were, a lot of them were Gentiles, sure. They didn't worship the plethora of gods that most of the people did. They worshiped one god. And in addition to that, a lot of the things that were associated with religion at the time, the temple sacrifices, they didn't see the Christians doing that because they were worshiping God from their hearts in a very different setting in some ways, right? The temple was extremely important to the Jews. They saw it as a the place that God resided, obviously, and yet uh, in the New Testament, we're taught, where does God reside? In our hearts. And so this, this passage is very much about that. Um, so they did not have temples, priests, or sacrifices, and uh, those were all sort of associated with, with uh, the church at the time. Um, and so, and as we already said, uh, he, Peter is also trying to prepare them for persecution. Okay, in, in Canada today, we don't face a lot of persecution. But we do face something that I think is in some ways more, I don't know, insidious. And that is, I believe that we are under extreme pressure to conform to the identity of the current world, not to the identity of Christ and to our Christian identity, right? And so when we think about this passage and what, what it means for the people that it was written to at the time, the letter, and how we interpret that, I think it's very important for us to think about that. We are in a world that wants us to conform to kind of the common belief system today. We're under extreme pressure to do that, right? Um, whether that's the media and the effect that it has on us, or, um, yeah, just the way our society, and I believe this is even more so in Canada than even in the U.S., is believing that you should tolerate absolutely everybody. And when I say tolerate... You should agree with or allow them to have that belief, and it shouldn't be a conflict with who you are. It's just, it's not reality. But that is a a significant pressure, I believe, in our world today, and something for us to think about then as we study this passage and think about, you know, how how does it apply for us? So, um... Let's just jump into the verses uh, 4 through 5, uh, if you, if you want to just read that as I'm thinking about or as I'm talking here. Um, there's no, no doubt that some of the Jews and pagan converts to Christianity 
may have been feeling that something was missing in their new faith. I talked a little bit about that in terms of the rituals that they would have been used to. They weren't there. And uh, obviously the Jews were also feeling, I think the Jewish Christians were actually being alienated out of the the temple at the time. And obviously, you know, the the temple is going to be destroyed. And so that's going to be gone. And that's, uh, you know... If you, want to, if you want to turn to uh, Luke chapter 21, 5 through 4, obviously that's the, the prof, or the, Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed, not one stone will be left on top of another. So their, their system or their belief in what made up the church at the time, Judaism was being broken down, basically, right? And so they, they felt alienated or somewhat like exiles, and in fact, you know, First uh, Peter 2 verse 1 there, if you go too quickly, uh, sorry, that's not the one I wanted, if you go to uh, verse, verse 11, sorry, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, he's referring to them as foreigners and exiles, because again, they feel like they're displaced, they're not in their comfort place, um, but Peter describes uh, the Christian believers as living stones, stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. The people of God are themselves a temple, a holy priesthood, and the sacrifices that they now bring are spiritual sacrifices rather than physical sacrifices, right? So he's trying to make this contrast of how, you know, when you think about Judaism, big center to that would have been the altar and all the sacrifices that went on at certain times, and just how visual that was. What they have is they have spiritual sacrifices to bring. They're not that visual, right? Very, very different, but uh, equally as important, and in fact, way more important in New Testament and in Christianity. So the Old Testament tabernacles and temples, you know, had really been a concession in some ways, it was one way that God's presence could be, abide with the people on earth while sin was still an issue. Now that the sin problem has been dealt with by Jesus, God no longer uses tabernacles and temples because his presence is within us and among us. God's chosen sanctuary is his people. So this is a very significant contrast to the visible nature of Judaism, right? And the fact that now Christianity... We are, we are the temple. Uh, it's, it's in our hearts. So, if we go on then to verses uh, 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So if we, we kind of move on to this whole idea about stones, there are a lot of passages about stones or the significance of that in, in the Bible. There's, um, I'll just reference them for you. We don't need to spend time on this, but there's the stumbling stone in Isaiah 8, verse 14, the foundation stone, Isaiah 28, verse 16, the parental rock, of Isaiah 
51, verse 1 and following, you're, you come from you know, your family heritage, your rock, basically the foundation stone of Isaiah 20, uh, sorry, I'm going to jump around, the rejected and vindicated building stone of Psalm 118, the supernatural stone of Daniel 2, and the burdensome stone of Zechariah 12, verse 3. So there's a fair bit of evidence, though, obviously, that uh, in, in using this rock and stone uh, uh, symbolism, basically, but it was uh, a messianic title, actually, for, uh, for uh, Jesus uh, among the Jews. Uh, Jesus' claim of being the Messiah, however, was rejected or disallowed by Jewish leaders. Uh, I mean, just turn to Mark chapter 8, verse... Uh, 31. Mark 8, 31. I'll just turn there quickly. I mean, we, we know this stuff, but... He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So, you know... It's, it's very clear that the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus, and so this, this whole idea of the stone being rejected uh, is, is very clear. Jewish leaders expressed their rejection and disapproval of Jesus and even had him executed. Jesus was cast aside as rubble, and now the Jews and others trip and stumble over it. So, I think this whole idea of uh, Jesus or the stone being a stumble, stumbling block for people, um, sometimes, sometimes we struggle with it a little bit. It's down in verse eight. Um, but but before we get there, what uh, how do I ask this question? For those who are rejected, Christ is their appointed dishonor and shame. It says right at the bottom there, which they were also destined for. What does that mean? Sorry? If you go down in the bottom of verse 8, says, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. The stone that the Jewish leaders rejected, right? Jesus. They rejected him. That stone becomes a stumbling block. So what's, what's going on there? I figured that might be the case. So I wanted to spend a bit of time on it. I, I actually think this is somewhat s- simple. If you think about the fact that God, you know, uh, has said that those who don't follow Jesus will go to hell. Um, it's a choice that you make. And once you make the choice, you're destined for salvation or you're destined for hell. 
but we still have the choice. I think it's really important, really important to put it into that light rather than to, you know, look at it as uh, a lot of times we do as predestination. It is predestination from the standpoint of God has set the rules in place. We have the right to choose whether or not we follow him or not. And this whole idea of this this stone that the Jews have rejected becomes the stumbling block is because they are stubborn and don't want to surrender their lives and give their lives over to follow Jesus. I think it's as simple as that. And so that's the ultimate shame and dishonor that they get from stumbling over this. I mean, you know, when you stumble over a stone or a step more recently in our time, how do you feel? Sorry? Yeah, ashamed. Yeah. So there's this shame of making the wrong choice. There's the whole, the, the idea of falling flat on your face in the dust, basically, or uh, that, but, but ultimately there's the consequence God has ordained for those who reject the gospel. I think that's the, that's the way to understand this passage. Yeah, go ahead, man. Yeah, I was You don't think Judas had a choice? Ah, people make wrong decisions all the time, in my opinion. I'm not sure I agree, but I will say that I think the, the message here. Yeah, okay. Right. I see, right. Yeah, the, I mean, the ultimate outcome was, was predetermined by God laying in place the, the system that he put in place, right? And uh, we are we are free to choose how we take that, whether we take it as uh, something we follow and we surrender to or we don't. And uh, that's, that's the way I see this. Does anybody's translation use capstone versus cornerstone? Does anybody have any thoughts on that, cornerstone versus capstone? Sorry? The difference is? Okay, I think the difference is, so the cornerstone was usually the, one of the foundational corners of the house at the bottom, and the capstone was actually one of the stones at the top that held the thing together. So, um, someone was going to say something over here. Your house isn't complete without either, that's a good, <laughs> good illustration. 
I did a bunch of uh, sort of reading to try to figure this one out for myself uh, in preparation for this, and I guess at the end of the uh, th- that I say, either way, Jesus is the vi- a vital part of this house. Um, and I, I, I sometimes think sometimes these translations may have been uh, just people trying to, again, carry the illustration a little uh, further kind of thing, and that might have been why people translated it in in the different ways that they did. The reality is that uh, Jesus, as the cornerstone or the capstone of the house, is he's the foundation. He's the finishing. He's the you know the the um, one of the or the most important part of the house, basically, right? And so there's this this whole idea here that I don't want to also gloss over, and that is that we are individually the temple, the house, and we are collectively the temple and the house of God. And uh, that has implications in both ways. We as individuals need to create in our hearts the right place for, for God to be there and to dwell, and we as a church need to create the right place, the right house for God to be there and reside, right? And so I think those are, are two things. I think the, the message mostly that Peter is giving here is just the fact that you, you know, yes, you've lost those stones, those foundational things, those rituals that you had as a Jew, and as you think about the Christian uh Life, they're slightly different. The rocks are slightly different. The things that we hang on are slightly different. And those are that we are a temple, that we now uh, give sacrifices to God that are spiritual sacrifices rather than physical sacrifices. Right? So it's a very, he's trying to create this, this sense that you are still part of the church. It's just slightly different than you used to think about, right? Now, obviously, the Gentiles are part of this. Um, and in fact, there's, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not this was for um, written to the Jews, written to the Gentiles. Um, I think it was, if it was written to the Gentiles, a lot of the messages are kind of rooted in Judaism and in the history that they had. And so I think you would struggle to, to, to understand it necessarily. So I do think it's uh, leaning more towards written to the, the Jews, but the, the Gentiles have been made part of that, obviously, uh, as, as well. So uh, let's, let's move on to chapter uh, 2, verses 9, 9 and 10. Um, sorry, my iPad's locked. I've got to get it open without calling Siri. But you are a chosen people. So he's, he's kind of transitioning now from the people that stumble, those who reject Jesus, those who miss the gospel message, to those that accept it. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Um, 
So the, for those that are accepting of God's message, he gives us these wonderful gifts by, by God's grace. It's by God's grace that we have them. He describes them using titles that are all titles that the Jews would understand. So another reason why I think it's Judaism, um, the symbols of Judaism are pretty uh, strong here. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's own possession. So chosen people, obviously, again, we know that the Jews were God's chosen people. If you want to read through the Old Testament, you can read many passages that talk about that. I won't go there. But are the Gentiles part of this? We hope so, exactly. If you want to turn to uh, Romans chapter 11, let's just go there quickly. Romans chapter 11. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those branches. Um, it's, my, my, my message here is that you know, the, the Gentiles have been grafted in, basically, uh, to, to this. We've been adopted as sons is the other reference that we could go to. Um, so we've been grafted into this, this chosen race and have become joint beneficiaries of God's favor, his grace, and his mercy, just as the Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ uh, had. <clears throat> so the, the next one is the royal priesthood. Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, of course, in 70 AD meant that the Jewish priesthood could no longer perform the sacrifices and religious rituals that they were used to, and this would have been devastating to all Jewish people. The letter to the Hebrews, however, teaches that the Old Testament Jewish priests and sacrifices were just a foreshadow of the better and superior way to come, and it's under the new covenant that all followers of Jesus, both men and women, are part of this priesthood. Instead of animal and ceremonial sacrifices, all of us can offer spiritual sacrifices of praise, thankfulness, contrition, devotion, and obedience to God. We can be sure that our sacrifices are acceptable when we offer them through Jesus. We do not need any other mediator or priest other than Jesus, our high priest. And so if you want to reference what I'm going through here, you can go to Hebrews uh, chapter 7 and most of chapter 7 and parts of chapter 8 go through this. But basically the whole idea that uh, we are a royal uh, part of the royal priesthood. Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Christian believers are part of the royal priesthood. And our sacrifices and service are in the service of our messianic king and high priest, Jesus Christ. Moreover, in a sense, we share with Christ in his kingship, in his kingship or his royalty, as well as in his priesthood. Okay, I'm just going to keep moving because as Ronnie did last week, I'm going to run out of time if I don't. Uh, so a holy nation, the nation of Israel had been set apart by God as holy. Uh, Exodus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 20. The description of believers as a holy nation reinforces the concept of obedience and sanctification. Ancient Israel holiness is 
was derived from the king and from their sacrifices and their, you know, covenant with him. But God has placed a new covenant with, with us and with us as Gentiles as well. And so we are a holy nation. And then God's own possession, uh, being God's own possession means that we are separate and distinct from unbelievers. God has called us out of darkness, Colossians chapter 1, and brought us into the kingdom of light. So we must abstain from the deeds of darkness. Uh, If someone could read for me Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, and someone else, Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. Can I have a volunteer on that one? That one and First Corinthians six fifteen through seventeen. Okay. Ephesians uh, five eight through eleven. For you were with darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Then as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And right up with the pleasing of the Lord. I have nothing to do with the frequencies of darkness, but rather expose them. God has called us out of darkness to be in the light, basically. And then uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 15 through 17. Do you not not know that your body is a moment of Christ himself? Shall I I then take the members of Christ and unite them to the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that So, I just think it's important for us to think about, okay, so when God says we are his possession, what does that mean for us? We, we need to leave, lead holy lives in response to that and, and uh, to be, become the temple that he wants us to be. So we are God's own possession and belong to him, uh, and one of our responsibilities as well, then out of that is that we are to declare his praises, it says, um, if, you, if you could then go, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are people in God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, so these are, these are references to Hosea. Uh, I'll just quickly read them. Hosea chapter 1, 6 through 10, and then 2, verse 23. Then the Lord said, call him Loamin, which means not my people, For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. And then also uh, Hosea 2, verse 23, I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. So God used the names of Hosea's children to show um, that he had turned away from them because of their repeated idolatry, basically. And however, in the same prophecy, we see that God is giving them a promise of being merciful if they turn back to him and a future restoration. And uh, 
So the, the Jews and, Christian, and Christians uh, of, of Gentile descent sort of felt displaced. Peter uses this prophecy to encourage them and show them that they are truly uh, children of the living God. Obviously, the Jewish Christians would have got this right away, uh, but the uh, Gentiles obviously are part of that, uh, considered part of the Israel of God. <clears throat> so, we have received mercy uh, at basically because God is a merciful God. So, in response to that, I, I wanted, this is what I wanted to get to in our class, was because I thought this was a fairly short passage, but it takes a long time to get through it, actually. Um, how should the illustration of Jesus as the cornerstone give us confidence? Or capstone? Never changes. He's already built the house. We're part of it. Yeah, a firm foundation doesn't move. In the storms of life, the, the whole building on the firm foundation versus the sand, right? Well, just like the cornerstone uh, gives the building direction and, uh, and around. Yeah, absolutely. So focusing on Christ allows us to be the Christians that we need to be. If you think about the, the people at the time, they were going through persecution. They were going to have to stand firm. They were going to have to stand up to the storms. They needed direction as to what they needed to do because it was slightly different than their Jewish heritage, right? And they turned to what did Jesus teach them, and trying to follow after that to be the church and the people of God that, that uh, uh, he wanted them to be. If you think about being a priest and a royal priest, what do you think are the main functions that we should have? Religious leaders, okay. Offer sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices? Absolutely. So complete sacrifice of ourselves, our will, and that's the stumbling block that most people, you know, at the time or that he refers to as those that rejected Jesus, fell over. They couldn't sacrifice their heart. They couldn't believe the gospel message, right? So the gospel message is only available to those that are open to it and offer in response, basically, a sacrificial life in response. Okay, one other, one other key item that came out of the passage that should be part of our response. So sacrifice, what's the other one? Um, I'm going to go back to something. Um, John 6, verse 7 to 0. Um, Jesus answered 
I didn't study that particular passage to come here this morning, so, but I would, in my, re- my response would be, um, yes, I think, I think Christ did know. God is all-powerful. Christ is part of the Godhead, and he has the ability to foreknow. Um, but I also think that we have free will. That's a fundamental belief of mine when I study the scriptures. So we have free will. We have the right to choose. This passage talks about the right to choose. Right, so I do believe that he he would have had the right to choose. Uh, you know, there is there is something called the unforgivable sin. Once we deny Christ so many times, we just get used to it, and so we do it. And it's possible that he was in that place. Uh, the unforgivable sin is still just a hardened heart to the gospel. Right? It's that we come so hardened to that, that we don't, we're not receptive to it. So uh, that's, that's my opinion. I wrote a paper on that way back in school. So. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I think, so one other, I want to get back to this. Um, Kelly demanded that I stop on time today. Um, one, what is the other main focus as priests? What do are, what are priests do when you think about them in the, in the temple? Sure, so that he was the mediator. Yeah, yeah. So we have direct access, absolutely, as part of our priesthood to to be the ministers in God's kingdom, basically, is the way I've put it into current language, but also to, to bring praises to God. That was the other one I was thinking about. And and we need to think about we need to think about how we bring praises to God in a way that people in the world can see that. Because that's again, if I think about what ministers, what individual priesthood should be doing, they need to be pointing people to God. How do we do that? The main way we do that is by telling them, telling them in a way that is acceptable or finds them in the place that they're at and helps them see God, right? And so we need to think about the ways that we give praises to God and we, in, with, with our fellow co-workers, with the people around us in society, uh, because that's what, that is what priests do, right? Is, I think... Uh, Along those lines, what the, the royal priesthood would be called to is demonstrating mercy and forgiveness. Yep, absolutely. What other ways can we, uh, again, be the, be the royal priesthood? 
have we exhausted that or was there other ideas people had? Hope is derived from the direction in our culture. Back to my first opening comment about the fact that we live in a culture that says that we should just be accepting of everybody. Our role as the priesthood should be to point to Christ, to set a direction that you know is somewhat different and set apart from that. Right? Go ahead, Daryl. Well, the royal priesthood nurtures uh, the, the members of the community Yeah, very good. Okay, thank you for your time.